Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us now as we open your word. Thank you for this letter. Thank you for this revelation. We pray that um, as I speak, your spirit would be moving and would be uh, teaching truth. And uh, that we, we would be seeing things revealed that are helpful for us and that are wonderful about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. Lord, we pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen. So what is the book of Revelation, and how are we to read it? That's a good question. Um, When I was talking to my family uh, yesterday, I was chatting to them about what I was preaching on today, and I said I was preaching from the book of Revelation, and they just went, "Ah, Revelation. And and, and one of them said, um, quite sincerely, Revelation was certainly not passed by the Plain English campaign. And I, I think that kind of sums up how some of us feel about the book of Revelation. Um, it's not an easy-to-understand book. Uh, it does seem to say some very weird things. And as such, we either come to Revelation with a sense of worry, knowing that whatever is said from the pulpit, we might not really actually understand it, or we come to it with a sense of overrealized intrigue, perhaps, or we feel it may show us dark, mystifying secrets that unlock some kind of special spiritual knowledge. Or we come to it with a sense of distrust, where we think that it's just not relevant to my life here on earth at all. The question being then, how do I apply a book like this to my own experience? Well, as we start off in our series in Revelation, I think it is very important to say right from the start that Revelation is a very, very normal Bible book. It is very simply a gospel book. And as we go through the book together over the next few weeks, I hope that you see that that is the case. The book of Revelation is a book that simply focuses on the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. In short, then, it's no different in content to the rest of the New Testament, or indeed the rest of the Bible as a whole. All of Scripture is talking about the good news of Jesus, or pointing towards the good news of Jesus Christ. And Revelation is no different. And once we get that into our heads, then we're really halfway there in understanding what's going on. It is a gospel book talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. However, it is different in style, and there are weird moments in it. We can all see that. It's foolish uh, not to point that out. There are some really difficult things that we have to work out. And that's because it is a different genre of book to what we are perhaps used to. And this is where the book of Revelation itself helps us out enormously. As we read straight off the bat in verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. This book is a revelation. That is, something hidden is being revealed. It's like a curtain being drawn back, and we get a glimpse of what's going on behind it. That's what the Greek word for revelation, apocalypsis, means. A decloaking of something, the revealing of truth. And knowing that this book is a revelation not only tells us what the book is, but also tells us how we are to read it. The book of Revelation, the apocalypsis, is, as the name suggests, apocalyptic literature. It's really important that we get the way we read that right from the start. 
Apocalyptic literature, very much like the last four chapters of the book of Daniel, if you wanted a comparison, it it incorporates elements of, firstly, prophecy. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And prophecy, as we know, does sometimes point to things that are to happen. We see that in verse 1, a revelation of what must soon take place. But prophecy, as the Old Testament shows us, mainly concerns the calling of repentance of the people of the time in the present. Prophecy has much more to do with, as Vaughan Roberts says, forth-telling, telling the news of repentance and obedience in the now, than it does actually with foretelling, telling the news of things that are to happen, as much as it does do that sometimes. And verse 3 really helps us grasp this. Let's just read this together. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it. That means the words of this prophecy are to be read aloud. And as weird as revelation may seem, this prophecy is obviously of importance to the church on the ground now, just like every other New Testament letter. And it means that this prophecy is to be taken in. We are to act upon it. We're to listen to it. That means we don't just nod and agree looking at heaven, looking to the future, stepping aside from it. We take in and we do physically now in the present. That's what we do with the book of Revelation. It is of practical importance to the church on the ground now. And for those who read it, And for those who listen to it and take it to heart and act on these things, they receive great blessing. And because of this, as Vaughan Roberts says, and I quote, we are then meant to read the book of Revelation, not as detectives looking forward to solving a very difficult puzzle, but as disciples expecting to hear God's message and determined to put it into practice now. But secondly, and very briefly, apocalyptic literature also incorporates a lot of sign language. This is language that points to or signifies something else. This is where we get the more weird elements of Revelation. The seven bowls, for example, the seven trumpets, the seven seals, the beasts, the horses. They're all signs and pointers and descriptors of other things. And as such, we read Revelation very differently than how we would read the book of Mark, for example. Revelation is not an eyewitness account of Jesus' life on earth, and so we shouldn't read it as such. That would be silly. Just as you wouldn't read a cookery book in the same way you'd read a Dostoevsky novel. And ultimately... That means we shouldn't take all of Revelation symbology literally. That is not how apocalyptic literature is meant to be read. To read that kind of sign language literally means that you completely miss out on the wonderful truths that they're really signifying. And if we do read it in that wrong way, then that's where we end up with confusion and misapplication. However, on the back of all that, and I'm going to end here with my introduction, it is important to note that there is only one truth behind the book of Revelation. There is only one reading of Revelation. Just as there is in any one book in the Bible, there is one overarching theme. There is one intent of the author. There are not many different ways that we can all read this book and come to our own conclusions. There's only one way. 
And by reading this literature as it is meant to be read, and by reading this book in the light of the rest of the Bible, Revelation does not exist in isolation. And by reading this book in the light of the one who reveals the revelation itself, we get to the glorious and simple truth that Revelation shows us. And what is that truth? Well, it is simply that Jesus wins. Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, wins. The one who is crucified, who beat death on the cross, who took back his life and who is seated at the right hand of the Father, he will have his day. And that is what Revelation will show us as we go through this glorious piece of literature over the next few weeks together. And with all that in mind, all that helpful stuff, let's get stuck in. My first point of only two tonight. We start off by looking at, and you'll see these on your service sheets, we'll be looking at the Revealer, chapter 1. It's obvious, isn't it, that a revelation needs someone to reveal it? And that person, as we see from chapter 1, verse 1, is Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Jesus is the great revealer. And look at the way Jesus is described in chapter 1. Just flick through it with me as I, as I scan through it. Christ is, verse 5, chapter 1, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Verse 6, he is the one who made us a kingdom of priests to God himself, the one who has glory and dominion forever. Christ is described here as the reigning king who saves. He is the one who has the kings of the world, that is, the earthly powers, under his control. The one who defeated death was the first to be raised, completing his victory over hell. He was the one who spilt blood on our behalf for our salvation. The one who turns us from sinners into priests of God himself. The one to whom is given total glory and total dominion. And we'll see that there are three important things to note about the great revealer, Jesus Christ. And the first is that he is the reigning king who saves. And if we cast our minds back as a church in everything that we've been looking at, is this not the king we've been following in Mark? We have been looking at the Messiah king who teaches a message of forgiveness and salvation. And here we read of the returning mighty king who has brought forgiveness and salvation. The Jesus of Revelation is the same Jesus all the way through the New Testament. Except here, instead of seeing him riding on a donkey, we'll see him on a charger for war. Instead of seeing him suffering and dying, we now see him very much alive and in all his glory. And having seen these descriptors of the attributes of Jesus, we also get a glimpse of a physical description of him. Jump down to verse 12 of chapter 1. John turns round, doesn't he, in response to a voice like a trumpet, and we'll come to John in a bit. The trumpet that has spoken to him, he turns round, and this is what John sees. He sees seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is astonishing imagery. It's arresting, isn't it? I'm immediately gripped by the picture of this man. And obviously there's lots of things going on here. He doesn't necessarily have shocking white wall, it signifies something, and we don't have time to go into everything that it signifies, but he is a mighty figure that this is the way John describes him. And as we see this description of the Son of Man, again, it snaps our mind back to Mark, the Son of Man. We know that is Jesus' favorite name for himself in Mark in the gospel. This is the picture that we now have in mind when we read the gospel accounts. And we know ultimately, don't we, that this image comes all the way from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. You can read it for yourself. We don't have time to look at it in detail. But it's exactly the same description there. Someone called the Son of Man coming down to meet Daniel in a very similar revelation that John receives, who is dressed in a linen cloth, a gold belt, fiery eyes, white hair. And so this is the second thing that we learn about the revealer. Jesus is not just the mighty king who saves, but he is the king of the ages. He is not just the king of the New Testament, he is the king of the Old Testament. Indeed, he is the king who spans history. This is why he's able to say to John in verse 17, Fear not, I am the first and the last. He has been there from the beginning, and he will be there at the end. And the Bible is ripped through with him right at the center of everything that is going on. And this brings us to the third thing that we see about the revealer. The revealer is the triune God. Flick back to verse 4 of chapter 1. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who was and is to come, that is the Father, And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that is the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, that is the Son. The whole of the Godhead is involved in this revelation. Again, back in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. The Son and the Spirit and the Father, they're in activity together as the different persons each take their role in delivering these incredible words of blessing and truth and importance for us. That means then that Jesus is the mighty king who saves, and he is the king of the ages, but obviously he is God. And this is why God the Father can say in verse 8, look, I am the Alpha and Omega, and Jesus, the Son of Man, can say, I am the first and the last, in verse 17. Jesus, one and the same substance with the Father, and yet distinct when his role as the Son is eternally present with the Father and the Spirit, as the Godhead rolls out creation, as the Godhead works out salvation, and as the Godhead, as we see here in Revelation, ties everything up fully and completely at the very end of time. The revealer of this revelation is the mighty king who saves. He is the king from across the ages, spoken about in the whole of Scripture. And he is God himself. And why does this matter? It does because, boy, when this king speaks, 
we listen. This is thunderous stuff. And if this is who the revealer is, then what on earth will his revelation be like? What are the words that we really need to listen to? And what is it that we really need to take to heart and obey? And this is where we turn to next, the revelation itself, our second point. It's funny, isn't it, how normal the first three chapters of Revelation are amidst the rest of the apocalyptic stuff we see from uh, chapter 4 onwards. Revelation opens up very much like a New Testament letter. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who was and who is to come, etc. It's almost odd by the fact that it isn't odd like the rest of Revelation. But it is not out of place, these letters, because the reason these letters to these churches are here, right at the very beginning of Revelation, is to root everything that comes later in the book into reality, into the world that we experience. We are going to be reading from chapter 4 to 22, a revelation of truth involving a colossal God, a colossal king who is waging a cosmic war with almighty horrors, a war that is to end Earth's fallen history as we know it. And yet, with these letters to these churches, we see that this phenomenal cosmic battle between Jesus and Satan happens in the reality of normal, everyday church life. You see, it would be so easy to read Revelation 4 onwards and step right back from it thinking, well, it doesn't concern me. But Revelation 4.22 does not happen in isolation. The rest of Revelation does not happen just in the sky concerning things that are in heaven. This cosmic battle is waged in the here and now, in these very normal churches that John is writing to. And the reason these churches are chosen to receive this letter, this revelation, is because these churches are representations of the church, of every church, of this church, of Chalmers Church. And we know that because of the way these churches are described. Note, these churches are, as we've read in chapter 113 to 20, they are described as lampstands and being represented by stars, which are angels. Lampstands and angels, that's how the churches are described. And the churches being described as lampstands makes complete sense, doesn't it? We're told in the Old Testament that Israel was to be a light to the nation, showing off and telling others about the goodness of God. And Jesus says of the believer that we are not to hide our lights under bowls. The church is to be a light in a dark world. And as for these seven angels, one for each church, that's simply saying that the church is not just a physical entity. The church of Christ has a spiritual dimension to it. It is represented before the throne room of God in heaven. The church is not merely an earthly club. It's a spiritual reality on the ground, in real life, in the real world, bringing real good news to humankind. This description of these churches matches what every church should be. A light in the darkness that is a spiritual institution. And so as these seven churches represent us, this cosmic battle that is waged in the very normal ways and situations that Jesus describes to these churches in Turkey or in Asia, 
They are also happening in the very same situations that are very contemporary to our situations in our church now. This is where this cosmic battle is being waged. In our wrestling with sin in Chalmers, in our dependence on Christ in Chalmers, in our preaching in Chalmers, in our small groups, in our daily sufferings, as we deal with our children, as we refute error, as we uphold truth, as we read our Bibles, as we say our prayers, as we rub shoulders with people we don't like, as we fret and worry and fight and forgive and repent, as we attempt to hold the simple gospel like a lampstand in a perilously dark world, this is where the cosmic battle is waged. Normal church? That's real war. And we feel that. The letters to the churches in Revelation are not a sideshow. The church, in fact, is the stage of this cosmic battle. And we are right up to our necks in it. And it makes sense then, doesn't it? Now, right from the start of John's writing here, we see that the church is suffering. Chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. These are letters. This is a revelation written to a suffering church that is having to endure and John, John is this, the great evangelist, John the evangelist, he is the, the gospel writer. He doesn't pull rank on these guys, note that. He sits with them in it, he identifies with them in their suffering. I, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, in the patient endurance. The kingdom mentioned here, as Andy said earlier, is the kingdom of the age of the church, the kingdom of Christ's rule, the last days, where Christ has conquered death and where we are brought into a full relationship with God, but where we don't see the full realization of that yet. We're still battling with issues and problems and the broken world and sin whilst waiting for our resurrected perfect bodies in the new creation. And there's a tension there, and that hurts. And John knows that. He knows what being in this kingdom feels like as a Christian. He's been exiled on Patmos for his faith. John knows that, and better still, Christ knows that. We know that it is hard being a Christian, and we understand why. And as we read through the book of Revelation, there is only one figure that always captivates our minds in the midst of everything that is happening around him, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the one who is in supreme control. He is the one who is exalted. And as much as this is a cosmic battle between Jesus and Satan, Jesus is always winning. He is always in complete control. And so as we wrestle with these churches in desperate situations in difficult life, we see that the exalted Lord Jesus does not struggle. And so the biggest application point of the book is that I throw myself full-bodied on to the winner, onto Jesus. But what does this all look like in the church in these situations? What is it Christ is saying to the churches in the midst of this war, in the midst of this world, and the midst of suffering? 
Well, we simply do not have time to go through all these letters, but let's read um, the Ephesus letter again. Let's get that into our minds. This is chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and then we'll look at the parallels between all of them. Let's just read it together. Chapter 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, there's wonderful symmetry here with every single letter. And I'm going to go through what happens in Ephesus, and we're going to see how that matches with everything else. First, with every church, there is an introduction. And that introduction introduces an element of Christ. And you'll notice that each letter, if you were to read it, read this later. It's a really good thing to do that, read it later properly. Each letter has a different aspect of Christ taken from the description of him in chapter 1. The church in Ephesus here has the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks amongst the seven lampstands. That's taken from chapter 1, verse 12 to 16. And go through all of them and you'll see Christ is making himself known to these churches. The Jesus who is delivering this letter to these churches is the same Jesus in chapter 1. He is this same powerful Jesus who is winning. That's incredible encouragement to the church. Second, with every church other than Laodicea, there is then a word of praise, always prefaced with, look, I know. Verse 2 of chapter 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Jesus is the king who knows. He is the king who sees He sees the church's pain and suffering. He's very aware of it. He knows what you are going through tonight for your faith in your life. He knows those of you who work tirelessly for this church, tirelessly for this church, at no seeking of reward for yourself. He sees that. It pleases him. It does not go unnoticed. It's incredible encouragement. That's who I do church for. Third, with every church other than Smyrna and Philadelphia, there is a word of criticism, always prefaced with, but I have this against you. Verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That's devastating for the Ephesians. So sad. What are the Ephesians doing church for? What are we doing church for? Do we really believe it's to be a light to the lost, or are we only concerned with how we look? Even if we're withstanding suffering well. Are we doing things out of a genuine love for God, or just a love for myself? And what we see here again is that Jesus sees, he knows. He knows our sin and our shame and our secrets. Which is why 
there is with every church, fourthly, a word of warning, often prefaced with the word repent. Verse 5, repent and do the works that you did at first. Go back to your first love, Ephesian church. Let he be your motivation. Or, as in the case of Ephesus, I will come and remove your lampstand. Is this our warning as Chalmers Church? We should absolutely read it as our warning, as we're meant to. Are we a church that has lost a love for God to the extent where we cease to be what we're meant to be? I I don't think we are, but we do not rest on our laurels. Let's heed the warning. Let's not get to that state where we just go through the motions. We need to watch ourselves. The removal of the lampstand means the church dies. This is serious stuff. And it requires examination for us on a corporate and a personal level. Fifth, with every church there is a word of exhortation. And it is always, let he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Don't just sit there and let this wash over you. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Listen, take heed to these words. Blessed, chapter 1, verse 3, are those who listen to these words and who do them. Are we a listening church? Are we hearers and doers of the word? You know, we've just looked at the church of Ephesus and we can see from that letter alone there are things that we need to heed, things that we need to be aware of. And a lack of love for the Lord is a genuine concern we should have. We should be watching out for this in ourselves and in our ministries. But we could also be warned about the false teaching of Pergamum, or the tolerance of public sin of Thyatira, or the dead works of Sardis, or the desperate lukewarmness of Laodicea. All these things we need to be careful of as a church. As it is in all these areas where we are fighting this cosmic battle. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. This is not a book detailing issues in churches thousands of years ago. This is the contemporary Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that makes this word absolutely fundamentally important to us now. Do we have an ear? And are we willing to listen? And just as we see these warnings, we also see the reality of what really happens to churches who don't heed these warnings. And as such as with Laodicea, they are spat out of Jesus' mouth. And this is also the reality today all around us in Scotland and in the UK, across the globe. Lampstands are being removed. The angel is being called back. The institution is being spat out and the church is dead. There are churches in spitting distance of this building that deny justification by faith. They deny the virgin birth, the nativity, the resurrection, and the death of Christ. And these churches are full to bursting, and they're very wealthy, but it has no lampstand. It's just an earthly institution. It's an empty shell. There's nothing going on there. And we think in our peril that we would never get to that state. Boy, do we need to heed these warnings. But boy, is there hope. Because there is, gloriously, one more thing that these letters all have. 
After all the praise and criticism and warning and conviction, there is, sixthly, a word of promise, always prefaced with, to the one who conquers, verse 7, to the one who conquers, I grant to eat the tree of life in the paradise of God. Or right at the end of our passage tonight in verse 21 of chapter 2, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Are we a church who conquers? Not in a personally triumphant way, but in a way that fully depends on this extraordinary Jesus as we fight for truth and life and as we fight for the gospel and as we fight for Christ's name in this city. And just as there are churches in the world that are dying, there are churches in the world that are conquering. There are churches in the world that are small, weak, desperate, flagging, exhausted, but they are conquering because their motivation is a love for God a love for the lost, a seriousness about sin, a seriousness about truth. And ultimately, churches that are motivation more by what they will receive. The eternal life with Christ where they eat in paradise. That is Eden language. Eat in paradise and sit on the throne with Christ himself. Is that our church? Is that me? Which are we? Are we a church whose lampstand is in danger of being removed? Or are we a church who is conquering? And to finish tonight, the truth is that for some churches, conquering means dying. And and I mean actual physical death. This is very much what the churches here in Revelation would have been facing. Physical death. One of the things that we've missed about, we've missed when looking at the person of Jesus, the king, is what is written in verse 17 of chapter 1. Have a look at that. Fear not, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, but behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What does conquering ultimately look like? It looks like beating death. You see, when Jesus Christ burst dramatically from death, he raided the safe of hell, and he stole the keys of death itself. And that kind of power is what earthly powers can only dream of. The suffering in the Asian church at the time of writing was almost certainly due to either the emperor's Nero or Domitian, the latter of whom demanded he be called God or you died. This is what the church was facing. But with the knowledge that Jesus holds the key of death and Hades, the Christian can turn around and say, that, well may, that way may be true that you can kill me, but you can't keep me there. I have a greater God. I know the holder of the key. I know the living one. And if Jesus is the king who saves... If he is the king who is from across the ages, and if he is God, then it must mean that he is also king of death. Can you imagine what knowing that would have meant to these churches? Facing earthly death, but seeing this image of the Christ, eyes ablaze, hair burning, radiating white glory, heat pumping out of him like a furnace, his voice thundering like rushing waters, and they point to him in the face of death and say, he has the key. 
That's what it means to be the living one. He's not just alive. He is life. He gives me life. The worst you can do is kill me. The least he does for me is free me and gives me life. And that is why, and that is why, Jesus can give these outrageous words of promise. Where we are invited to eat with him and sit on his throne because he is in supreme control. He is the supreme conqueror who has not just beaten death for himself, but stolen the keys of hell for the church. So that I too, when I die, or when the church is killed, I am released into the throne room of this incredible God, where I sit with him and eat with him and reign with him. We are a church in Edinburgh that is situated in the last days, the age of the church in the now and the not yet kingdom of Christ. As we straddle to stretching point the reality of fallen life on earth on one side and the heavenly life with the victorious Christ on the other. But there is one more day of the Lord left and only one. And that is that Christ will return in all his glory that we read here tonight on this charger for war with the saints in his wake as he finally rolls up the heavens and renews this earth where we will finally be bodily raised with him and seated with him in heavenly places for an eternity without sin, struggle, dying, or pain. And that's what it looks like to be a conqueror. And we do so in the blood and on the back of the only one who could conquer for us, the king who saves, the king of the ages, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, God himself. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father God, we thank you so much for these incredible words. Thank you for the image that we have of your Son, Jesus Christ, the great revealer and the great conqueror. Lord God, we pray that we would be very careful as we read these words. Help us to take these words in well and seriously and help us as a church and individuals to really heed these warnings. Father God, please keep us away from being a church whose lampstand is in danger of being removed. Heavenly Father, help us always to be doing things because we love God and because we love the lost. Heavenly Father, help us to be a church that suffers and endures well for the gospel. May we never give things away. May we never give the gospel away for want of an easy life. May we never do that. And Lord God, I pray that ultimately our motivation would be that beautiful eternity that we have promised for us, eating and reigning and sitting with Christ. Lord God, we praise you. Thank you for this incredible encouragement. Thank you so much for your wonderful word in your mighty name. Amen.